John chapter 1, we'll begin re reading in verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Years after the gospel took place, years after Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, years after that happened, the apostle John finds himself in Ephesus, serving as the pastor leading the church there at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a mighty church. Ephesus actually undermined the pagan basis for which the city of Ephesus was founded. They literally turned that city upside down, and John is the pastor of this church. John had a special friendship with Jesus. He was the closest disciple there was to Jesus. Um, he refers to himself in the third person in the gospel, according to John, many times, and he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a special friendship, a close relationship with Jesus. You always find John in Jesus' innermost circle. Whenever Jesus breaks down the disciples, and he's only got three of them with him, John is in that three. He's in the innermost circle of the inner circle. It was John who was next to Jesus at the Lord's Supper who leaned back on the chest of Jesus to ask who would it be that would betray the Lord that night. And unlike many of the apostles, John lived a long life. He had a long and fruitful ministry. And here he is in these latter years in the city of Ephesus, and he's finding himself confronted with multiple myths and theories about Jesus. And we tend to do that, don't we? We tend to take God and we tend to try to remake him after our image. In, in our quest to understand God, we recreate him into something that we think we can understand. And in doing so, we create an idol and we create false doctrines. In John's day, there were various theories about Jesus. Some of these theories denied his divinity, denied that he was God in flesh. 
Some of these theories denied his humanity, denied that he was actually a man, denied that he was actually human. Some of these theories denied his anointing. They denied that he was Christ. They accepted him as teacher, but denied him as the Messiah. And all of these denials is heresy. All of these denials deny who Jesus is, who Jesus was, what Jesus did. It's all heresy when you do that. And the Apostle John confronted with these doctrines, this is personal to him, because he knew Jesus. He walked right next to Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's why when he opens up the book of 1 John later on in the New Testament, he's like, the, the one whom I saw, whom I heard, who I handled with my hands, he's saying Jesus is a concept to y'all. I knew the man. I knew him personally. And this is personal to John. So to dispel these theories and to clarify who Jesus is, because what was personal to John was not just making sure that you got it right when it came to Jesus, but what was personal to John was for you to know exactly who he was. He wanted you to know who Jesus Christ is and for you to have no misconceptions for who Jesus is. He wrote this gospel according to chapter 20, verse 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is not a biography of Jesus. It's not just a collection of things he did. John's gospel is a selection of key moments in the ministry of Christ that demonstrate who he is. And who he is is the only begotten Son of God, God in flesh, who died for our sins and then rose again to give us eternal life. John wants us to understand that's exactly who Jesus is and what that means. This book was written not only with an evangelical purpose to lead people to the Lord, but also to give us a richer understanding of our faith, a deeper understanding of our spiritual condition. And in this, John encapsulates everything that we believe and everything that we are. The gospel, according to John, truly is an amazing book, an amazing work. You can read this book, get to chapter 21, finish it, Turn around, go back to chapter 1 again, start reading, and gain an entirely deeper perspective. And you can continue to build those layers. You can spend your life reading the gospel according to John, and you can grow in your faith, and you can see God do amazing things. Now, I do believe that you should read other books of the Bible, too. But the, the gospel according to John is just so powerful. In John chapter 1, the apostle goes straight into who Jesus is. He tells us that Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh. He tells us that Jesus is the light of the world, and he tells us what Jesus accomplished in this world. So let's look at who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is, in fact, God in flesh. Let's look at the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Apostle John goes right to the beginning, right to the beginning of creation, right to the beginning of time to tell us who Jesus is. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in John chapter 1 verse 1, 
John tells us that the Word was there, that Christ was there in the beginning with God as the, word, as the world was being created. And not only was he there with God, but he was God. He created all things, and everything that was made, he made, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is not just a right-hand man here. He's not a Johnny-come-lately. He's not God's emergency plan when everything went wrong. He was right there in the beginning, in the beginning of eternity, with God. In fact, he was God. And when you read these verses and you see, in the beginning was the Word. 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 Why is John using that word? The Greek word is logos. Why would John, who's sitting in the city of Ephesus, I mean, he could have opened this book up because I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. In the beginning, Jesus was there. In the beginning, Christ was there. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, in the beginning was the word. What is this? That Greek word, logos, we translate as word. But why? Because... John is in Ephesus. He's in, an, he's in a Hellenistic culture. That means a Greek culture, a Gentile culture. They trace their heritage, their traditions, their beliefs all the way back to Socrates, to Plato, to Aristotle. And John's audience is not just a Jewish audience. John's audience is Jewish and Greek, and you will find him explaining certain things and translating certain words as we go through the book, because he's making this make sense for the Greeks that are reading this. The Greeks had a concept, a theological concept called logos. Mm -hmm. All right, so here we are in this world, and the Greeks worshipped Zeus and I don't know all the Greek gods. They lived all all up on Mount Olympus. If you ever climbed Mount Olympus, did you find their castle? No, because they don't exist. So they, they've got to explain this. They live on Mount Olympus, but you never see them. Well, they live in the spiritual world. Okay, but we're here in the physical world. How, where's the connection? The connection for the Greeks between the spiritual world and the physical world was this concept called logos. And it was real popular back in Plato's day. Of course, now that's several hundred years before John is writing this gospel. But it was making a comeback in John's day. And so John says, I'm going to tell you about the connection between the spiritual world and the physical world. I'm going to tell you all about this logos. In the beginning, that connection was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the connection between the spiritual realm and the world in which we live. And in telling us that Jesus was in the beginning with God, John is telling us that Jesus was God. He's not a demigod. He's not a mere mortal. He's not half God, half man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. But he was God in flesh. And in demonstrating his divinity, John tells us that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you look at everything around you. All this was made by Christ. Our world, our creation, our environment, the, the, the universe, which, by the way, is still expanding. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's infinite, but it's expanding. 
Now work that one out in your head. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, one of my favorite classes in college, a class in which I made a C, was astronomy. We had at Stephen F. Austin a planetarium. And at certain points in this class, we would go in that planetarium and the professor would take us through some of the parts of the universe that, that we were to be studying. And it was just an amazing experience. I mean, the universe is truly an amazing thing. I've been to McDonald Observatory. As you've never got to check out space, maybe you've been up on top of a mountain and you got to see the Great Valley below. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, maybe, I don't know, I mean, sitting next to the Pecan Bayou on the right day is pretty amazing. We don't think so because we see it every day. But it's just we have this amazing world in which we live. God created all of it. Christ created all of it. He was there in the beginning. He created it. And uh, this also teaches us that nothing exists outside the divine will and creation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh. He's the connection between the spiritual world and the physical world. And he is the one who created all things. That's God for you right there. He is divine. And verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, Logos, God, Christ, put on flesh. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us the same way that we dwell. He went to work. He had to eat to sustain. He got tired. He went to sleep. He endured everything that we do, yet without sin. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We saw the glory of God through him. We saw the glory of God. We saw the grace of God. We saw the truth of God. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God. No one has seen the face of God. And if somebody tells you they saw God, they were having a hallucination. That's, that's, no one has seen God. But Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This verse essentially says the same thing. That the one who is at the Father's side, Christ, has made the Father known. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we do not worship this great teacher. We do not worship this wise man from 2,000 years ago. The teachings of Christ um, are, are, I mean, when you talk about the teachings of Christ, you have to keep the teachings of Christ tied to the gospel because that's why Jesus was teaching in the first place. That's what Jesus was doing in the first place. The, the whole message of salvation, of Christianity, our central belief is that this Jesus, God, divinity, deity, took on flesh, became man, lived the life that we have to live, and did so without sin, lived a sinless and pure life, and then took the wrath of God upon himself so that God could pour his wrath out for all of our sins upon him so that we could be released from the debt of that sin. And the only one qualified to do that would have to be God himself. And so God took on the form of man. He became a man so that the judgment could be carried out upon man. But he, being the God that he is, would be the only one with the strength to endure that and to rise again. And so John's telling us exactly who Jesus is. God the Father, the one true God, the divinity that created heavens and earth where everything comes from, that's Jesus. That's who he is. 
not Zeus, not Hercules. Um, he's not just, Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He's the God. He's the God. In fact, when you read the Greek text, the word God, Theos, always has the word for thee in front of it. He is the God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with the God, and the word was the God. Specific, definitive article. We're not going to have English class this morning, but that's, 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 that's important. That's important. He is the God. That's who, that's who our Jesus is. And he's the light of the world. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Our Lord is the source of life. He gives life. The reason you breathe today is because God gave you life. What's the first thing that God did for man after forming him from the dust of the earth? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He has given you life. Phil Robertson was giving a speech one day, and he was telling a story about a man who was taking the Lord's name in vain. And Phil Robertson said, why are you cursing the God who gave you life? Wound up leading that man to the Lord. God gave us life. And when I say he gave us life, I don't mean that he gave us the ability to respirate, to digest, to, to, you know, to, re to reproduce and procreate. What he gave us in giving us life is a living soul. Yeah. Man became a living soul. You are an eternal being. And your purpose in life extends beyond the preservation of the environment. You are not just a part of the food chain. You are a living soul, an eternal being, a unique personality, a sentient creation that has the attributes that God gave you to be creative, to build, to make better, to improve, to cultivate, to subdue, to conquer, to overcome. You have been given these amazing abilities, intellects, skills, personalities. You have been given a living soul. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the source of life. He's who gives us life. He's who gives us meaning to life. And the life that he gives is eternal life. And the eternal life that he gives through salvation is the light of men. The illumination of our souls come from Christ. Your salvation comes from Christ. He purchased it on the cross. He gave you eternal life through the resurrection. And through the Holy Spirit, he guided you to salvation. He illuminated your soul. We talk about, you know, when we go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, um, that, you know, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And let your light so shine before men. And we're always quick to note that, you know, we don't have light in and of ourselves, but the light comes from God. And we've often used the moon as an illustration of this because it reflects. But you know what? God actually dwells within you through the Holy Spirit. You're more than a mirror reflecting the light of God. You are a light bulb that is powered with his electricity. Amen. He has given you light. He has illuminated your soul. He has given you this eternal life. He has given you this hope. He has given you his love. The illumination of our souls comes from Christ. And Christ being the light of the world who reveals truth, who reveals salvation, who puts aside darkness, 
who gives, brings us out of dark, hopeless places and brings us into a hopeful place, into a place where we can have joy, into a place where we can see truth, where we can know truth, where we can be at peace. That same God lives within our souls and that light shines in darkness. And here's the thing about it. The darkness cannot overcome it. John summarizes the case he's about to make about Christ. He's about to make a case about Christ as to who he is and what he did. And he's going to show us how Christ, God in the flesh, light of the world, and source of all life is going to come into the world. He will show the opposition that Christ had. He is going to show how the opposition to Christ was completely powerless before Christ. Just as darkness has no power against light, when you turn the light bulb on, the darkness and the light don't struggle against each other until the light lights up the room, does it? No, you turn the light bulb on and the darkness is gone instantaneously when you were a kid and you had a nightmare and you cried for mom or dad and they came into the room and turned that light on was that not instant comfort that was i'm safe i'm safe the light's on there's no battle between the darkness and the light the light has infinite power over darkness and just as darkness has no power against light evil has no power against christ satan has no power against God. It's not even a contest. They're not even taking the field. It's over the second the Lord shows up. And we have a lot to worry about. Russia is invading Ukraine. We've got war going on. We've got social issues. We've got protests in the streets. We've got ungodly things happening in our society. Persecution of Christians around the world. But it doesn't matter how bad things get. The darkness cannot overtake us because we have the light of the Lord dwelling within us. The light of the world cannot be overtaken by the darkness. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to silence him. The Romans were more than happy to go along with this situation. They went into the garden to arrest Jesus. It is the Apostle John that tells us that when Jesus asked whom you seek, they said, Jesus Nazareth. He said, I am he. It's the Apostle John that says they all fell backwards. They did not have the physical strength. They brought an army to arrest Jesus. They couldn't arrest him without Jesus' permission. The darkness had no power. Pilate said, do you not know that I have the power to put you to death? Jesus said, you have no power over me at all, except that it were given to you from above. They couldn't silence. They couldn't stamp out Jesus then. Hundreds of years of persecution. They have not been able to do it since. In fact, if you want to spread Christianity rapidly in your country, history shows you persecute it. Where is Christianity spreading the fastest right now? China. Places where there are intense persecution. Africa. You know, I was told, I don't know the truth of this, but I was told that the Chinese churches were praying for persecution to come to America so that the Holy Spirit could do the same thing through our churches that he's doing in their churches and that the gospel flame would be reignited in America and they would see it spread all over the world in rapid succession. I'm not sure I want that prayer request to come true because I'm selfish. But historically, where persecution has broken out, the spread of the gospel has outpaced it. Darkness has no power in front of the light. Verses 9 and 10, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He lived in and he lived among his creation, yet mankind did not recognize him as his creator. Nor did we recognize him for who he is, and we did not recognize his authority. 
you know, in the Old Testament, there's a story about Balaam riding his donkey. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and turned aside. And Balaam didn't see the angel of the Lord, so he starts beating the donkey. And this goes on, and the donkey finally opens his mouth and starts talking. And Balaam's not really bothered by the fact that his donkey's talking, which is kind of a, I don't know what his problem was. We have a donkey across the street. He brays at me on Sunday mornings when I show up because he wants attention. If he ever said, hey, Leland, I think I'd be going back to the house to change my wardrobe. Um, but Balaam's not bothered by this talking donkey. But um, the talking donkey let Balaam in on the fact that the angel of the Lord was there to slay him. And I heard one preacher preach a sermon that was entitled, The Day That a Donkey, but he didn't say donkey, The Day That a Donkey Had More Sense Than a Man. You know, the donkey recognized his creator. Creation recognizes his, their, its creation. The animals, the beasts of the field, they recognize their creator. Jesus Christ lived among his creation, and his creation didn't know him, right. didn't recognize him, did not recognize him. Mankind did not recognize Christ as his creator, and we did not recognize him for who he is. We did not recognize his authority. Like the darkness, we were in darkness. We were completely blind. But the Lord did something about that. In verse 11, he came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. He, came, he became a man, he lived as a man, lived among men, ministered to man, yet man rejected him. And when the Bible says he came into his own people, he was promised as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Savior to the Jews. He went to the Jews. He went to Israel. He came as their promised Messiah. He fulfilled the prophecies that the Messiah would fulfill, yet they did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him. Conscientiously rejected him. It was not the Romans who crucified Jesus. Pilate did not say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to crucify this guy. That was not what happened. In fact, Pilate, studying secular history, later faced charges over this. You read the reactions of Pilate and the Roman soldiers. They all knew that this was a raw deal. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Pilate's trying to find a way to let him free. Pilate came up with a plan. He's going to put him up next to Barabbas, this horrible criminal. And sure, they won't want the horrible criminal walking among them. They'll let Jesus go. He's already beaten him. He poses no threat. They'll let Jesus go and then they have me crucify this horrible criminal. But they, they, they called for Pilate to crucify Jesus. Pilate politically could not get out of this deal. Pilate knew it was a bad deal. He goes, I find no fault in the man. I find no fault in him. The Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus, who nailed his hands to the cross, what did the centurion say when Jesus gave up the ghost and the earthquake took place? He said, truly this was the Son of God. Now, the Romans involved in this deal, they knew it was a raw deal. But the Pharisees and the chief priest and his own people called for his crucifixion. And in doing so, they said, we have no king but Caesar. They pledged a greater allegiance to the Roman government than they did to God. And they mocked Christ as he hung on that cross. He came into his own and his own people did not receive him. They outright rejected him. But verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave, I love this, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, it says he gave the power. Same thing. comes from the Greek word, exousia, it's authority, it's right, it's power. Okay? He gave the right. The rejection of Jesus Christ was 
overwhelming, but not universal. Those who did receive him, those who did trust in him, were given the right to become the sons of God, the children of God. The right to become children of God. The right. Think about that. The right to those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. A right cannot be denied. Those of us who are involved in politics, we know all about that word, our rights. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. We, 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 we talk about that one. That's one that I believe in. That's one that many of you have expressed that you believe in wholeheartedly. The right to free speech, to the free expression, to freedom of the press, the right to the free exercise of religion, to be able to live in our faith the way that we understand that God would have us to live. And we have a right given to us. It's not given to us by the Constitution but it is spelled out in writing in the Constitution, which means our founding fathers committed our government to that principle. We have rights. We have rights. You have a right to a fair trial. You have a right to representation. You have a right to a phone call to let somebody know that you have been incarcerated. You have rights, and they cannot be taken away. They cannot be taken away. And God gave us the rights. He, all these rights, he gave them to us. We have the right to life. That's where the Second Amendment comes in, the right to defend your life. We've got the right to life. We've got the right to liberty, to freedom, to the ability to make choices and to be able to live according to our beliefs and our faith and, and what we believe God would have us to do, the right to the pursuit of happiness. That is the right to pursue security for your family is what the right of pursuit of happiness is. Sorry, Phil Robertson. It's not the right to shoot drakes and ducks and that sort of thing. That would fall under liberty. Okay, the right to the pursuit of happiness is the right to create stability and the right to create uh, security for your family. Those are rights, and the Declaration of Independence tells us that those rights are given to us, are endowed upon us, not by a government document, not by a political agreement, but by God himself. Those are rights, and they cannot be easily denied. The Bible says that he gave us who believe on him the right to become children of God. Which means when you repent of your sins, you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have been adopted into God's family, and you, have, you become a child of God. That is your right. Amen. And God will not deny you from that. That's what it's saying. It's not saying that we deserve something. It's not saying that we have the ability to demand something from God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should be prideful or arrogant about this. I'm just saying that God has bestowed upon us a right to become his child when you turn from your sins and you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It is something that he will not take away from you. That's your salvation by grace apart from works because rights cannot be earned. Rights do not have to be worked for. And that's where you find your security of the believer where you cannot lose your salvation because rights cannot be truly revoked. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. If you're in the King James Version, the only begotten of the Father. That's special. That's special. That should be noted. We should understand that. Full of grace and truth. See, we're all adopted children of God. Jesus is the biological Son of God. He's special. Amen. He became flesh. He became a man. 
He lived as a man. He was tested in all points like we are. You ever have a difficult customer? I think Jesus might have had a difficult customer in his day. Mm -hmm. you, ever, you ever have interpersonal conflict, family problems? You know, in Jesus, and, and, the, and the Bible tells us this in John chapter 7, when Jesus told his family that he was the son of God, his brothers didn't buy into that. Like, okay, yeah. I mean, we know your mom's favorite and all, but... And they kind of made fun of him. John chapter 7, they're like, hey, if you're really the son of God, why don't you go down there to Passover and work some miracles and put on a show, and man, you'll be big stuff then. They're making fun of him. They wind up becoming believers, but early on, his brothers didn't buy into this. He had family issues. But he lived all that without sin. He revealed the Father to us, and he brought us grace and truth. I don't believe that I'm capable of putting all that into words. Mm -hmm. To communicate what John was trying to communicate under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and, and the gospel according to John, who Jesus really was, what Jesus really did. These first 18 verses, all they do is summarize the rest of the book for us. We got the summary. We've got the thesis statement. We're going to go through this. We're going to look at this. But you've got a loving God whose creation rebelled against him and thus dedicated themselves to destruction and condemnation. And this loving God became one of us in order to take the wrath of God upon himself to set all that straight, to even it all out so that we could be redeemed and we could be welcomed into his presence and in his kingdom and live as he intended on us leaving in the peace and joy and fullness of the Lord. Amen. And what all that entailed. And what all of that meant. And what it means for us. Yeah. It is just so amazing. I don't see how you can get bored with something like this. Right. I don't see how you can get bored with something like this. Our God loves us. Amen. Our God and the only God, I might add, redeemed us through his only begotten son. Went to the cross, took his punishment for our sins upon himself so that we could be released. Wouldn't it be nice to be released? You got any debts? Wouldn't it be nice to get a phone call that those have been forgiven? Wouldn't that be great? Something you messed up a while back has been fixed. You can go back to work there now. Wouldn't that be nice? That's what the Lord has done for us on a spiritual level that our earthly minds many times has trouble comprehending. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our faith. And he and his story are worthy of being the basis for our lives and our lifestyles. Amen. Let us stand.